and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked a bit about what the Christology, what the nature of Christ looked like in the New Testament, and then ways that had been interpreted in various times and places. And this time we're going to talk a bit about what the earliest writers in the church had to say about just who Christ is. So the earliest age in the church is sometimes called the Apostolic Age. This is this era from the 30s through the 90s, in which the apostles and other disciples went out from Palestine in all directions. They went as far as India, as Egypt, as Rome and Spain, and everywhere they went, they planted churches. We see Paul doing this in the book of Acts, but he's just the one that we have this record of in the New Testament. It's sort of like saying there are lots of privileged families in Los Angeles going to fabulous parties and buying lots of clothing, but we only have the record of the Kardashians. They're the ones that the reality TV show is made about, but by no means are they the only wealthy people in LA spending way too much money on clothes and booze. In the same way, the church has preserved stories of apostles like Thomas going all the way to India about his trials and tribulations, about the community that he founds there. We have stories of Barnabas and James and all these different apostles doing different things in their various mission fields. So everywhere they would go in this apostolic age, they were the witness to the gospel. They had known Christ, they had had these experiences, and they were full after the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit. And so they spoke in this inspired way that moved thousands and thousands of people, not only to let them into their homes and to start having these weekly meetings or even daily meetings for prayer and education, but to actually give their lives. Because in this apostolic age, martyrdom became very much a reality. So to be a Christian was not just like picking a new religion that might be sort of interesting and kind of checking it out. You were actually putting your life on the line. And yet one of these people, one of these apostles, one of these disciples would come into your town, would start preaching, and suddenly people would be drawn to him and would give their lives for this message of the goodness and love and peace of God as made manifest in Jesus. So as we talked about in a previous episode, some of these apostles or disciples or their own disciples would start to write down some of these stories of the words and the actions of Christ. And so by the end of this apostolic period, you have almost two witnesses that are really saying the same thing. You have the gospel of someone like Paul, who is, is preaching who Christ was, um, the will of God, and you have uh, a gospel like the gospel of Matthew, the actual written-down gospel of Matthew, which is preaching who Christ was, uh, the will of God, and so forth. And as these apostles would move on from a town, they would ordain someone in that community, the bishop, or maybe an elder, a presbyter, a priest in that community. And we even see this process in Paul's letter to Titus. He writes to Titus, I left you behind in Crete so that you would appoint elders in every town. And then he goes through and starts to say, what qualifies someone to be a bishop? So there's the sense that maybe they're appointing 
priests or presbyters, elders in some places, maybe bishops in some places. Maybe there's a more kind of free play of meaning in those terms in Paul's writing. Regardless, they're ordaining people to be leaders in those communities and overseers, teachers within those communities. And this is the pattern that happens throughout the apostolic period. So an apostle like Peter would leave a place like Antioch and make his way to Rome. And before leaving Antioch, he would consecrate a member of the church at Antioch, its first bishop, first bishop after the apostles, non-apostolic bishop. The apostles aren't really bishops. They're kind of the origin of the bishops, but they are their own order of ministry, really. So he would ordain someone to be the teacher of the community, the chief pastor of the community, the overseer of the community, which is what Episcopoi bishops literally mean. So we have this age in which the apostles are the chief source of authority in teaching in the church. And then as the apostles begin to die off, we have this next age in which a group of the very first bishops are in authority over the church. These are people who have learned from the apostles, learned from the disciples, their direct students, and they're often called the apostolic fathers. So if we have a question and it's not really answered in John's gospel, if there's something we want to know John's opinion of or something we wish that John had talked about and it's not in John's gospel, then we might want to look in the writings of one of John's students, someone who learned directly from St. John. So we might want to look at someone like Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp of Smyrna. Ignatius is this early bishop in the city of Antioch. He is, um, some estimate, born at some point in the 30s and then is martyred in 107 or 108. And we have these amazing letters that he wrote on his kind of death march from Antioch to Rome to be martyred. So he's traveling with these these kind of cruel, heavily armed soldiers, and along the way he is writing letters to various Christian communities. And these letters give us a wonderful window into the theology of the apostolic age. And in the same generation, we have a letter from Clement, the Bishop of Rome. We have both the a single letter and also the acts of the martyrdom of Polycarp, a contemporary of Ignatius and Clement. In the same era, we have Melito of Sardis, another bishop, and we also have Papias of Heropolis, another bishop. Unfortunately, Papias's works that are preserved are only fragments rather than complete works. We also have some texts by anonymous authors and uh, a text that is certainly of the era but probably attributed to the wrong person in the letter of Barnabas. So when we ask a question like, what did the early church think about who Jesus is or something like this, there are actually answers to this because we have these preserved texts from the late first, early second, into the mid-second century. Looking at some of the earliest, which are Ignatius's letters, it's interesting to see how he discusses the person of Christ. So one confusing thing about Ignatius's letters, he's writing to some of these really important early churches founded by St. Paul. And because St. Paul wrote them letters and Ignatius wrote them letters, you have letters with the same titles. So you have Ignatius's letter to the Ephesians, different from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in which he says, there is one physician who is possessed of both flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life in death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, even Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So here in Ephesians, he is outlining his theology of who Christ is, his Christology. So he is both flesh and spirit. He is both made, he's both a creature and not made, not a creation of God. He's both existing in the flesh, true life in death, this wonderful paradox. He's the source of all life, and yet he dies, both of Mary, his mother, and of God, his heavenly Father. First passable, and then impassable. First vulnerable to the lance of the Roman soldier, and then utterly invulnerable. Even Jesus Christ our Lord. Later in the same letter, he'll talk about Christ saying, For our God, Jesus Christ, he calls Christ our God, for our God, Jesus Christ, was, according to the appointment of God, conceived in the womb by Mary, of the seed of David, but by the Holy Ghost. He was born and baptized, that by his passion he might purify the water. So Ignatius is um, writing this pastoral letter, but speaking in these deep, astonishing very poetic theological terms. He also says in Ephesians, Now the virginity of Mary was hidden from the prince of this world, as was also her offspring, and the death of the Lord, three mysteries of renown which were wrought in silence by God. How then was he manifested to the world? A star shone forth in heaven above all the other stars, the light of which was inexpressible, while its novelty struck men with astonishment. And all the rest of the stars, with the sun and moon, formed a chorus to this star, and its light was exceedingly great above them all. And there was agitation felt as to whence this new spectacle came, so unlike to everything else in the heavens. Hence every kind of magic was destroyed, and every bond of wickedness disappeared, ignorance was removed, and the old kingdom abolished. God himself being manifested in human form for the renewal of eternal life. And now that took a beginning which had been prepared by God. Henceforth all things were in a state of tumult because he mediated the abolition of death. So here Ignatius is not only talking about who Jesus is, God and human, which is taken as a given in his letter and in many early Christian documents, But he's also saying why God became human. Why did the incarnation happen? It is for the defeat of death, the overthrow of the kingdom of evil, the renewal of eternal life. In Genesis, we see the fall of Adam and Eve. They turn away from God. They reject God. They reject God's commandment in the garden, and they give themselves over to death. Death, ignorance, sin, corruption, evil are ushered into the world. And from that moment on, humanity becomes enslaved to death, enslaved to ignorance, enslaved to this process of decay which our bodies go through. And this is still how most people conceive of life. You know, you can offer someone a cookie and say, this is the best white chocolate macadamia nut cookie you are ever going to taste. This is a famous, incredibly important cookie in the history of baking. The downside is that it'll probably kill you. And the vast majority of people, unless they're true gourmands, will say, thanks, but no thanks. Add death to anything? I don't want it. The world's best vacation, but you die at the end. No thank you. Phenomenal cocktail. Contains arsenic. Not going to have it. 
So we think of, of death as this kind of ultimate terror from which we are constantly fleeing at all costs. We never want to go close to death. We never want to incur death. And this is the vision of humanity after Adam and Eve. We are enslaved to death. We are constantly running from death, and death always gets us in the end. So why was God born? Why did why did God the Son take on human flesh, the Word of God take on human flesh and come among us to live and to die and to rise again? The point is, in part, the annihilation of death, the annihilation of ignorance, the annihilation of corruption, the overthrow of the prince of this world, the overthrow of the angel of death, of the enemy, and the return to eternal life. So, Ignatius is packing a lot of incredible theology into this one fairly short paragraph. If you have never encountered his letters, they are free in translation online. There are lots of editions of them in various bookstores. They are so worth reading. If you're someone with an interest in theology, in what early Christians believed, if you are someone who is in ministry and you need to plagiarize amazing theological ideas for your sermons, you can do no better than Ignatius of Antioch. In Ignatius's letter to the Smyrnaeans, he says of Jesus, He was truly of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and the Son of God, according to the will and power of God, that he was truly born of a virgin, was baptized by John, in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, and was truly under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, nailed to the cross, for us in his flesh. So not to belabor a point here, but when you're asking who Jesus is to the early church, it's very much consonant with this theology that you find in you in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, this theology that you find in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word stood in front of God, and the Word was God, and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. There's this consciousness that Jesus is fully divine, fully human, that Jesus is our God, and that Jesus is our brother, the great exemplar of what humanity can be, and the creator and judge of humanity. Christology, the nature of Christ, does get addressed in the writings of some of these other fathers, but it's often in a kind of antagonistic way, because early on in the church, there seem to be three sets of understandings of who Jesus is. So you have one understanding the churches, which is that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. He's 100% plus 100%. And then you have everybody else that says, you can't be 100% plus 100%. That's not possible. So Jesus must either be 100% divine, 0% human, or 100% human, 0% divine. And you have, in a sense, the first heretical understandings of Christ that come up in the first century. I may have said this before, but we sometimes think about heresy as like kind of creative theology, thinking outside the box theology, entrepreneurial theology. These were people who were just kind of having these great ideas and expressing things in new ways, and nobody understood them yet. They were ahead of their time. But that's actually the opposite of what heresy is. So heresy is not a clever, creative, new way of thinking about God. Instead, it is a reduction heresy is always reductionistic. So whenever we hear a heretical idea, it's taking the mystery of God, the majesty of God, the utter incomprehensibility of God, and shrinking it down to a little, tiny, human-sized form that can be understood and
comprehended and made mathematical sense of. So these first two heretical groups, they were taking this incomprehensible God-sized idea of fully God and fully human and saying, let's just cut out one of those pieces and make sense out of this. So you have those on one side that was the much more popular side, the much more kind of rational conclusion from who Jesus is from a first century perspective, second century perspective, called the Docetists. So in modern ways of thinking, we might think that the most rational, the most kind of popular group of people who wanted to reduce um, the nature of Christ to something comprehensible would say, he's just another guy, he's not divine, but he's a great teacher. In fact, that was a much smaller minority. The majority heretical group, the Docetists, would say that Jesus is fully divine. They have no problem with that concept, but not human at all. The Docetists are not from one religious tradition. They're from a plurality of kind of quasi-Christian traditions, but they all agree on this one idea, that Jesus cannot have been both divine and human. Because matter is intrinsically flawed, it's intrinsically lesser. And it would be the most blasphemous thing you can think of to say that this fully divine being had sandwiches and went to the bathroom and got beaten and whipped and spit upon by Roman soldiers and then died. That would just be utterly ludicrous and crazy. There is no way you can take the fullness of the almighty, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, and buy him a cup of coffee. Like, that's that's insane. It's like saying, like, if, um, if there is a raging 12-story inferno next door, I went next door and I took the fire, these 12 floors of white-hot flame, and I put them on a dog leash and I took them for a walk around the neighborhood. Like, th- even that is infinitely more plausible to a docetist than saying the Almighty, the All-Powerful, hung on a cross and died, or even had cups of coffee and sneezed or whatever. To them, whether they come from a Platonic perspective or from a Gnostic perspective, that's just ludicrous, and you can't make any sense of that. Docetist, this word just comes from the Greek word doketis, to seem. So they would say that Jesus was fully divine and seemed like a human to us. He was kind of like a hologram, reaching out from the divine to lead us into divine truth. He was sort of like the hologram of Princess Leia that R2-D2 projects, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. That's not actually Princess Leia, but it looks like her, it sounds like her, and it conveys the message. In this way, Christ's revelation can be totally true because it's coming from this divine figure without in any way insulting or compromising divinity itself. But for the early church, theology is not about figuring out the most logical thing or the least insulting thing to God. It's really about carrying on this tradition that was handed on by Christ to the apostles and from the apostles to the subsequent generations. And if Jesus actually did eat sandwiches and drink cups of coffee and go to the bathroom, then who are we to say that he didn't? And so you'll see someone like St. Polycarp, who was a contemporary of Ignatius. In fact, one of Ignatius's letters is actually written to Polycarp, his friend. Polycarp is um, a great early martyr of the church. We have the account of his martyrdom in which, as a very old man, he has marched out into the arena, and the local official presiding over the game says, look, Polycarp, 
You're in your 80s, everybody likes you, nobody wants to see you torn apart by wild animals. Why don't you just denounce these atheists and just get back to living your life in peace? We'll let you go, no hard feelings. And this is because the Romans called the early Christians atheists because they did they denied the reality of the gods. They denied Zeus and Hephaestus and so forth. Instead, they were atheists because they denied these gods and believed only in the one God. And so old Polycarp, silent for a moment, and he points at the crowds of cheering Romans and he says, I denounce these atheists, calling the Romans atheists, not the Christians. So Polycarp's a little joke. They kill him for it, obviously. But Polycarp is this great leader, this great bishop in the church, and we have one of his letters as well. Ignatius's letters are full of these wonderful first century articulations of the gospel. And you're, you're very much getting either Ignatius's take or the, the take that he inherited from St. John and from others, but it's not one that you've necessarily heard before, even though it's consonant with everything in the gospel. Polycarp's letter, however, is mostly riffing on gospel quotations and quotations from the epistles. So it's just this tapestry of biblical texts kind of woven together and conclusions drawn from it. So it's a different process of reading. But in this letter, he addresses these concerns of the docetists, and he does not mince words. He says, For whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist. And whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil, and whoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and says that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. In other words, if you think that Jesus is just a hologram, didn't actually get crucified, get out of here. That's totally not the church's belief. And equally so on the other side of things. So equally so for those who said that either Christ was just an average Joe like anybody else but had some really good ideas, or even those who said that Christ was so good or so wise or so knowledgeable about God that at his baptism, God decided to adopt him as his own son. He sort of gets the ultimate performance review and promotion from the ultimate boss. This was a much smaller group in um, the first century than the Docetists or the Orthodox, than just the, the church itself. But there was a group that said Jesus was an ordinary rabbi with fantastic teachings, and this was always roundly excoriated by the church as being a heresy, as being this reductionism, this reduction of fully divine and fully human into something comprehensible. Just a guy. One of the fathers of this era who is so comfortable with mystery and paradox is slightly later than Ignatius and Polycarp. His name is Melito of Sardis. And he's someone that we knew a lot about from people like Eusebius of Caesarea, the great church historian, but we didn't actually have much of his writing except for fragments. But in 1940, someone published um, a newly found text called On Easter, Peri Pascha, by Melito of Sardis. And I think of Melito as this kind of great lover of the paradoxes of God. He is the opposite of someone who wants to reduce things to a mathematical formula. Instead, he wants to just dive into these wonderful, mind-bending, astonishing realities of who Christ is. Melito says of Jesus, This is the one who comes from heaven onto the earth for the suffering one, and wraps himself in the suffering one through a virgin womb, and comes as a man, 
So he has come for the suffering, for you and for me. And he wraps himself in our suffering, in our suffering nature, and comes as one of us. Melito says, He accepted the suffering of the suffering one, through suffering in a body which could suffer, and set free the flesh from suffering. So he accepted our flesh, he accepted our suffering in a body that could suffer. So he became vulnerable. He gave himself over to suffering, made himself open to suffering, and through that, frees the flesh from suffering itself. Through the spirit which cannot die, he slew the manslayer death. So he he actually kills death itself through God the Holy Spirit. This is just this deeply poetic, wonderful, paradox-laden uh, vision of, of who Jesus is, this kind of incredible mystical understanding. He is the one led like a lamb and slaughtered, like a sheep. He ransomed us from the worship of the world as from the land of Egypt, and set us free from the slavery of the devil as from the hand of Pharaoh, and sealed our souls with his own spirit and the members of his body with his blood. This is the one who clad death in shame, and as Moses did to Pharaoh, made the devil grieve. This is the one who struck down the lawlessness and made injustice childless, as Moses did to Egypt. This is the one who delivered us from slavery to freedom, from darkness into light, from death into life, from tyranny into eternal kingdom, and made us a new priesthood and a people everlasting for himself. So again, this is all from Melito's uh, On Easter, Peri Pascha. But lastly, Melito ends this long, wonderful, poetic work with the answer to the question, like, who is Jesus? He it is who made the heavens and the earth and formed humanity in the beginning, who was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who took flesh from a virgin, who was hung on a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was raised from the dead and ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the power to save all things, through whom the Father acted from the beginning and forever. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end. The ineffable beginning and the incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the Commander. This is the Lord. This is He who rose from the dead. This is He who sits at the right hand of the Father. He bears the Father and is born by Him. To Him be glory and might forever. Amen. I think we should let Melito have the last word. So ask the first and second century church who Jesus is. There you have it. I appreciate you being with me for the history of Christianity, and I look forward to next time when we'll ask some of these same church fathers why he did what he did. What is Christian salvation for the early church? Thanks again.